So, today we're looking at our third in our deeper series. Uh, Sam started us with the first two, and I've forgotten what the first one was already. Live. Live. Then it was love, love. last week, and today is look. And I'll be reading at various times from different parts of uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you and want to turn to that, do so. The various verses will come up on the screen uh, as I need them. But before I start, I thought I would share with you some of my Christmas reading. Uh, one of the things I like doing is going through the charity shops, either charity bookshops or through their bookshelves, looking for books which I haven't read and trying to find something interesting. And every so often I find something which is bit more than averagely interesting. And one book I got for Christmas, uh, which just before Christmas I was reading, was by Paul Thoreau, called The Happy Isles of Oceana, Paddling the Pacific. Written in about the 1990s, and basically he takes a collapsible canoe and starts in New Zealand. He doesn't uh, paddle everywhere because uh, he has to fly between things. But where he can, he gets his canoe out and he goes paddling. So he starts in New Zealand and Australia, ends up going into Micronesia, Melanesia, and ends up in Polynesia. And one of the things when he gets to Polynesia, he comments on, is the way you have very strong family connections and what matters is which family you belong to. Now, when he's in Western Samoa, he paddles out to a small island, and this is what he comments about some of the people he met there. While the younger people were almost uniformly mocking, Palangi, Palangi, the older ones were correct, neither friendly nor distant. There are complex rules governing greetings in Samoa, as well as extensive aspects of etiquette, including many prohibitions. A stranger, unfamiliar with the Samoan way, is therefore a sitting duck. The Samoans have not seen many tourists, and their attitude seemed to be that if you're part of the family, you were left alone. And if you were a stranger, you were fair game. I was followed by more kids, and always I heard the word Palangi in their muttering. I usually turned round to face them. Yes, I am a Palangi. Do you have a problem? In a shouting, jeering way, one would say, Where are you coming from? I think Japan, one would say. This they regarded as very funny. Do I look Japanese? Yes, he's Japanese. And so on. I don't know what you think about how he was treated. Do we think that anyone who's outside our community is fair game? Or do we think that somehow not how society should be? Just leave that as a question at the moment, but we'll come back to look at that in a bit more detail. The passage that Sam gave me, which I'll start from and then we'll move on from, is uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verses 1 to 4. 
This is giving us our context for today. So Philippians chapter 2 verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So, with the terms of look, we're at look not only at your own interests, but also the interests of others. Does that sound to you as something which is distinctly Christian? Or is it something which you think is universal? Does it reflect things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? You know, you should treat other people, effectively you should treat other people as you would want them to treat you. Is that normal? In our society, is it seen as being normal? That that is how we should behave? Now, I've told you before I'm going to bore you with Tom Holland's book, Dominion, so this is the uh, Tom Holland bit. But one of the things he draws out in his book, when he's looking at how Christianity has influenced the way the West thinks, is he would be very strong that these ideas are not universal. The idea that we should care for other people, the idea that you should care for somebody who's outside your community, outside your extended family, the idea that the strong is good, no, getting beyond the idea that strong is good, weak is bad that we should care for those who are weak. And one point he does make is that when you look at the UN Declaration of Human Rights, that the vast majority, the person who is chairing the committee, <coughs> the vast majority of the people involved in the committee were Christian. The chair of the committee was Charles Malik who is a Lebanese Christian of, uh, from a Greek Orthodox church. When I tried doing a little bit of reading about it, uh, using the wisdom of Wikipedia, the thing which came out there, that effectively the, pretty well the only person on the committee who didn't come from a Christian background was the Chinese representative who uh, was arguing for uh, human rights coming from a Confucian background. But despite what the UN's website will say on its front page, where it tries to stress that the, thing, the committee was from across many different cultures and uh, philosophical backgrounds, in fact, being, being a product of its time, 1948, that was not the case. But, if we're to look 
to the interests of others, how are we to do it? Now very often we quote the next passage, next verses in this chapter. And there's good reasons for that. Because looking at it from a literary point of view, the next verses in this uh, chapter 2 of Philippians is written as poetry. Now, it's recognised as being an early Christian statement of faith, if you like. An early Christian statement. What nobody can really work out is did Paul actually write it himself? Or was it something which was already in use in the church and he quotes it here because people know it? And we just haven't got enough literary evidence to be able to say either way. But if we're going to look at verse 3 where it says, let each of us look not only to their own interests but the interests of of others, how are we going to do that? Because certainly Tom Holland looking at culture as a historian would say that is not natural. To do that is going against the whole trend of the way human culture works uh, across societies. So, I'm going to read the next verses now, from verse uh, 5 onwards to 11. So this is what Paul says to them. So, first five is an introduction, verse 6 gets into the poem, if you like. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So if we are going to know how can we not look just to our own interests, but to the interests of others, the pattern we need to follow is that of Jesus. And what this is telling us is that in Jesus being born on this earth, living his life on this earth, being executed by crucifixion by the Roman authorities, in that... He emptied himself. Quite what that means, we can't really say. Because we don't really have the vocabulary or the mental capacity to work out what is actually happening here. Because we're talking about what is happening in the Godhead between God the Father, God the Son Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Even trying to get our brains around that is usually enough to scramble them. So quite what it means by Jesus emptying himself, 
we can get ideas, theologians will come up with ideas. But what is absolutely clear about it is Jesus gave up the rights he had. Rights, in a sense, he could insist on. Rights which were his due. There weren't anything he was forcibly trying to grab from somebody else. He gave up so all, if you like, of what he was entitled to, to come and live on this earth as one of us. So our model for us serving one another is Jesus who gave up all of his rights for us. Therefore, in following him, we don't have any rights, in a sense, we can insist on in terms of, I will do, you know, I'm willing to serve this far, but that's the limit. Now, I better explain what I mean a bit more there, because in one sense, yes, we do have that right. When we become Christians, we don't lose our free will. We still have the choice of how we behave, how we respond. So, in a sense, within what we are entitled to do as humans, we have that choice. But if we are following Jesus, like him, we can lay down our privileges. We can lay down all the things which we could say, oh, that's my right, I can insist on that. Because if we're going to serve one another by not looking after only our interests, but the interests of others, that means that there will be times when we need to lay down what we are entitled to, to enable something else to happen. So, when we look at how the period of time in which Christianity started. You have the Roman model, which exalts power. You have people like Augustus Tiberius, who are described as being son of God, contemporary period to Jesus. But he has that title given to him because of his power. Because he's got the power to bash you up. He's got the power to force you to commit suicide if he thinks you're cheating on his the, uh, literature test he's giving you. That's something I picked up from Tom Holland's tweets this week. Uh, have a look at those if you want to get the details. But, you know, he's got power. He's got absolute power. Therefore, you call him Son of God. Compare that to Jesus, who laid down his power. 
who was executed in the way which Romans reserved for slaves to make sure that slaves didn't get too uppity and uh, start rebelling. So Jesus totally turned around what was seen as the norms of how you would recognise a son of God. And so he also calls us to turn around the norms as to how we would consider what is success, what is power. But having done so, God the Father then raises Jesus up. He is exalted as Son of God. Because by his death, he actually defeats a greater enemy than any of the enemies which uh, the Romans attacked. Because he's defeated Satan, because he's defeated death. So what should we do? Continuing on in this chapter, in verse 12, this is what Paul tells the Philippians, therefore, this is how they should look to the interests of others. He says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon you the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Therefore you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Remember the time we're talking about, as has already, I think, got mentioned earlier, Paul was in prison. The church is being persecuted at this time. So we're not talking about Christians who are living in a fairly comfortable environment as we do. But even within that environment, they're encouraged to consider the others, not to uh, grumble. We need to have an attitude like Jesus did, that we can lay things down without needing to complain about it. Thinking about the society we live in at the moment, I think if we are looking at the way our society tends to operate, particularly in this day of social media, there's a tendency to very quickly, on whatever issue, to go to having two sides. So either you're for one side, or you're for the other side. There's a tendency to 
uh, probably also to only mix or mix to a large extent with people who think the same way as you do. But if we're going to take an interest in others, that is what we need to do. We need to take an interest in them. We need to look at one another as people and not as stereotypes. Not just trying to latch people into, oh, you're this or you're that. Apart from anything else, people are more complex than that anyway. And it's actually much more interesting when you actually get down and actually understand where people are coming from rather than just making assumptions about where they come from. I don't know if any of you uh, picked up anything on your social media or other news things about last Thursday evening's uh, 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 question time on television. Uh, I must admit I've stopped watching the actual programme for some time, but it's about four or five different extracts from Thursday night's one uh, popped up into my uh, Twitter timeline. Uh, one of them being from our esteemed MP for Faversham and Mid-Kent, who was on there representing the Conservative Party, but most of them uh, were relating to the actor uh, Lawrence Fox, who, uh, uh, if you haven't picked up on it, most of you are looking blanks, so obviously this is something which uh, hasn't uh, impacted in uh, your social life. But he ended up, obviously, right, over there it obviously has, good. Uh, so some people got an idea what I'm talking about. But what I actually find interesting is not the actual detail of what was being said. It is to do with uh, Meghan and Harry and whether there was racism involved was the starting point of it. But the interesting thing is, on the actual programme, although the two people involved, there's a question, some question from the audience and Lawrence Fox from the panel. They were being robust in what they said, but they were being polite to one another. If you follow any of the social media, obviously I filter quite strongly what I get, so I'm sure the uh, uh, general media will be even more extreme than what I observed. But what I did observe, if you tended to follow some of the trends, is that you might start with things being fairly polite in the way people are responding, but very quickly you get people coming in who are being very abusive and uh, sort, of sort of condemning people on the other side out of hand. Now, I, because of the people I follow, I tended to see one side of the argument, from what I've picked up from other things, it seemed to be fairly much the same on the other side of the argument. So it wasn't that one side is working better than the other. It seems to be a tendency within our society for a lot of people to effectively ignore what is actually being said, and it just comes down to, are you part of our tribe or are you not? And if you're not part of our tribe, you get condemned without real any consideration of what you say. If you are part of our tribe, you're okay even if you talk absolute rubbish. So, 
what we need to be doing, both in how we respond to one another and how we respond to people outside, is much more. We need to actually listen to what people want to, are saying. Take concern for people, whether we agree with them or not. And as I've mentioned before, uh, research shows that churches are about the second most diverse place you can find in this country. Uh, the most diverse being a football ground. We're not as diverse as we would like to be. Maybe that says something about the rest of our society. If uh, the, there's sort of a small step down from football grounds to churches and an even bigger step down to the next most common thing, which I think is a pub. But it might not be, because uh, people tend to select which pub they go to. But the thing is, if we're not going to actually deal with people as individuals, you end up with a very tribal thing. If we think that that is not the right thing we should have, it's actually because Christianity has influenced our culture to say that there should actually be something more than that. I think the interesting thing coming up will be whether as people reject the outward signs of Christianity, whether that's then going to affect the way our culture is as well. And with anything like culture, you never get immediate effects. Things take time. <coughs> but let's get back to us. Verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Let's make that something we want to work at getting deeper into. I think with anything which we're looking at at this stage, when we're looking at deeper, you're never going to reach a point where you can't go further. Because there's always the next stage in the way we think, which we need to bring before God and allow Him to change the way we think, the way we behave to one another, what we do. Because if we're going to look to other people's interests, not only do we need to know who they are and know them, we then actually need to start doing things as well. And that's, going, that's always the harder bit because it's then going to affect us. But as we come to bring it service to an end, what we want to do now is break bread and share the wine. Because what this reminds us as we break the bread and we share the wine is that we are part of one body.